have any spacer sequences between the genomes? They're very short spacers. And so now we have DNA that's wrapped here, and this MRV11 is making a nick on nucleosome bound DNA at 10 and 27 base pairs. Those are in proximity. But then it also can make a, theoretically, I'm hypothesizing here, it can make a nick on DNA wrapped on the next nucleosome because the next nucleosome is going to wrap around and there's going to be a sequence in that next nucleosome that is in very close proximity to this MRE11 complex. So that, that's the only way I can envision that you get this far nick and very close nick. And then this other key factor is that processing of the DNA around this site is impeded. Nucleases can't get to it because, as you said, there's things sitting down here protecting this end. Okay, so that's the key point that I want you to get. It's packaged into nucleosomes. These nucleosomes are unique. They have that uh, H2AX rather than the other normal H2A variant. And so their, <coughs> their molecular features are different than nucleosomes elsewhere in the genome. Okay, so what we're going to talk about today is immunoglobulin and T-cell receptor gene rearrangements. These rearrangements only occur in B and T cells. Um, and primarily I'm going to be discussing uh, immunoglobulin gene rearrangements, but virtually everything I say, in fact, I think everything I say, can be uh, applied to the rearrangements that occur to the T-cell receptor in T-cells. And so, um, I'm sure you've seen all these cartoons before illustrating uh, immunoglobulin structure. It's composed of two light and two heavy chains. And it's this end of the molecule, it's the money end of the molecule. And each of the heavy and light chains have a constant region, which is in blue, and a variable region, which is in red. And it's the combination of the heavy and constant region, variable region sequences that comprise the antigen recognition site. So the ability of our antibodies to recognize foreign antigens is because of the way that constant and heavy and light chains come together and combine their variable regions to specify antigen recognition. We have the capacity, all higher eukaryotes, of encoding antibodies that have about 10 to the 9 um, different antigen recognition capabilities. So the question is, how with a single heavy chain immunoglobulin locus, there's two light chain immunoglobulin loci, do we generate antibodies that have the potential to recognize 10 to the 9 different foreign antigens? And it has to do with the fact that antibodies are, are the only situation where the term gene doesn't apply to the mature gene product. It applies to subsets of um, the product that are rearranged to make the final mature gene product. And these subsets of genes are the variable region genes, the J region genes for joining, and the constant region genes. And at the light chain locus, those are the only genes that are present. We have V, J, and C genes. At the heavy chain locus, we also have V for variable, J for joining, and constant. And this is the effector reason. The, the constant region that's chosen in this process specifies the effector function of the antibodies. So are they in secretions? Um, are they present in the serum in response to foreign antigen? And 
the heavy chain locus also has an additional element called the D element that's not present at the light chain locus, and the D elements just specifies diversity. This is the last element that was identified. So if you just go through combinatorially and you say every variable region gene can combine with every J gene and can combine with every C gene, and you just do the math, you can get about uh, 10 to the fourth different light chains in humans. Let's just look at humans. And you can get about 10 to the fifth different heavy chains just by saying multiplying this times this times this times that. And if these 10 to the fifth heavy chains can combine in a random fashion with these 10 to the fourth light chains, now we have the 10 to the ninth um, coding capacity that the genome has for making antibodies. So how do we accomplish this? This is in fact what, what occurs, and this is how we generate uh, antigen recognition diversity. So, again, there's two loci. There's the lambda locus and the kappa locus for the light chain, and they have different genomic organizations. So the lambda locus looks like this. We have variable region segments that are down upstream, excuse me, of a combined J gene and C gene. So what occurs only in D cells is a rearrangement that brings this variable region into proximity of this J, this J, or this J. It can choose any one. And when it chooses a J, it chooses a C. All right? There's no additional rearrangements at the lambda locus. It's a little bit different than the kappa locus. Um, here we have the variable region genes, and then we have a cluster of five J region genes. There's only one constant region gene at the heavy chain, I mean at the light chain kappa locus. So this variable region gene can recombine with any one of these J joining segments. And the next slide just depicts what occurs. And again, these rearrangements are only occurring in B cells. So here we have B2 that's recombining with J4. So this gene rearrangement occurs in B cells and what occurs during that rearrangement is the intervening sequence is lost by deletion in this particular case. So in B cells, now we go from this germline gene rearrangement to this situation where I have V2, J4, but J5 is still present in the genomic DNA of this B cell. So how is that dealt with? So it's dealt with as an intron. So the primary transcript that's derived from this gene in a B cell it encodes a leader sequence, a signal sequence, because these are secretory proteins, then the variable region sequence, and then the J sequence, the J5 sequence is there, and then the constant region sequence. And this is the primary transcript. This is present in HM, heterogeneous nuclear RNA. As that RNA goes, undergoes export from the nucleus to the cytoplasm, it's spliced, and this J5 element is spliced out. Also, this intron is spliced out, and so here's the mature transcript. And again, it has this leader sequence, a signal sequence that's targeting it to the secretory pathway. So the mature protein, this is the initially translated protein, the mature protein loses the signal sequence during translocation into the ER. And so here's our mature protein, BJC, at the kappa locus. Any one of the D genes could have undergone rearrangements of any one of the Js to generate this mature final product. Um, the complexity, again, is a little bit more, there's a little more complexity at the heavy chain locus because of these D segments. So um, we have 
Again, J elements, B elements, and variable region elements. There's nine constant region genes with heavy chain locus, as versus the smaller number of the light chain locus. And what one of the important points I want you to look at here is the sort of uh, genomic gymnastics that has to go on in order for the re rearrangements to occur. So here's just the region that contains the D elements, the J elements, and the constant region genes. This is 300 kilobases of DNA. The entire heavy chain locus is 2.7 megabases. So the variable regions are way out there, okay? So when you can choose a variable region sequence that's 2.7 megabases away from these DJ elements, and that recombination event has to be specific and precise to allow for these gene rearrangements that occurs in B cells. All right? So there's one other thing about uh, the heavy chain locus that um, doesn't occur at the light chain locus, and it, it's that D element. And what occurs at the heavy chain locus we, is we first have D J joining, so it's a sequential joining. So first DJ rearrange, and then a DG, DJ rearrangement chooses a B gene. Um, here's one other point I just wanted to make. So here is the uh, final primary transcript of the DDJ uh, joining at this heavy chain locus. And the region that specifies antigen binding specificity, they're called these complementary determining regions, and there's three of them. And they're comprised of the B gene, but the third complementarity determining region is the result of the joining of the B, D, and J gene. So you get this enhanced antigen binding capacity by how this gene rearrangement at the BDJ junction comes about, what, what sequences are chosen. The other thing is that antibodies are both secreted and membrane proteins. All right, so here's the constant region gene. And if the final splice product for this constant region gene goes from this exon to this exon, the protein's secreted. If the final splice product for this heavy chain gene goes from this exon to this exon, this protein is a plasma membrane protein. It's retained in the membrane and it's not undergoing secretion. So what are the characteristics of that exon? What are the protein characteristics of that exon? Um, it's going to potentially code for a membrane protein that would have a hydrophobic domain. It is hydrophobic, all right? So any stop transfer sequence, this is a stop transfer sequence. So any sequence that specifies membrane retention of a protein is a hydrophobic stretch of about 20 amino acids in length, sufficient to span the plasma membrane or the lipid bilayer. And I have a, just a, my understanding, you said um, they, they join and they rearrange, and then they choose a B gene? B. B, okay. Oh, sorry. B. <laughs> gotcha, B gene. DJ, B. Okay. okay, so um, those rearrangements that occur in our B cells, they occur in the absence of antigenic stimulation, okay? Every B cell rearranges its V, I mean its heavy chain and light chain loci. And, well, actually that's not true. I'll go through the exception to that statement in a minute though. But they'll rearrange their heavy chain and light chain loci and they'll make a functional antibody. And that antibody will be expressed on the surface of the B cell. 
And this is not a naive B cell that's never been exposed to antigen. Um, that B cell is going to proliferate if any foreign antigen comes in and has the capacity to be recognized by that surface antibody. So when the antigen binds to that surface antibody, it triggers a signaling uh, cascade that leads to the proliferation of that B cell. So now we have, you know, thousands of B cells of that antigenic specificity that's able to respond to and remove that antigen from uh, the host. So we don't want a B cell that has two different antigenic specificities. We only want it to respond to a single antigen. We don't want it to be confused about when it should proliferate and when it should lay quiescent. And so how do we achieve that? And it's achieved through a phenomenon that's referred to as allelic exclusion. And allelic exclusion is basically this. So in pre-pro B cells, all the B cells will undergo a gene rearrangement on both of their loci, on both of their alleles, resulting in a DJ joining. So both the alleles undergo a DJ gene rearrangement. In the pro-B cell, there is the second rearrangement that occurs at the heavy chain locus that gives you a VBJ joining. And so here's one of the alleles underwent this gene rearrangement. One third of the time, approximately, that's a successful gene rearrangement. And by successful, I mean it made a mature protein that didn't have a stop codon introduced during the rearrangement and was able to be expressed on the surface of this cell. If this heavy chain is expressed on the surface of this cell, it suppresses rearrangement of the second allele. So there's no additional gene rearrangements that occur. If it is, however, unsuccessful, if a stop codon was introduced during the gene rearrangement, now the second allele tries to undergo rearrangement as well. And again, it's successful at about a one-third success rate. So one out of three times, this second allele makes a heavy chain that can be uh, secreted and expressed on the surface of the cell. If you were one of those unlucky cells that doesn't achieve a successful gene arrangement in, in either of your tries, undergo program cell death, undergo apoptosis. So this is how the cell is eliminated from the population and is no longer available to express the antibody. So now we have these pro-B cells that have a heavy chain. The same thing occurs at the light chain locus. And the kappa locus tries to rearrange before the lambda locus rearranges. So we have uh, a VJ joining at the kappa locus. And if that joining is successful, now I'm going to make a mature functional antibody present on the surface of the cells that has two heavy and two light chains. And that will suppress the rearrangement at the second allele of the lambda locus. If both of those rearrangements are unsuccessful, by unsuccessful I mean the uh, mature antibody is not expressed on the surface of the cell, then it'll go and try to rearrange the alleles at the lambda locus. And again, if both of those rearrangements are unsuccessful, that cell will undergo programmed cell death. So this is the sort of sequence of differentiation steps that assure that cells only develop a surface immunoglobulin of a single antigenic specificity. Because if you get a successful gene rearrangement, then the subsequent rearrangement of the other allele is suppressed. All right?
So how does the rearrangement occur? So uh, this only occurs in B and T cells now. And um, the sequence, so this would be a B gene. And then um, downstream somewhere is a J gene. And so the sequence flanking the B gene has its conserved features. It has conserved heptamer, a spacer that's either 12 or 23 base pairs, and then a conserved monomer. And the way that recombination is directed between D, D, and J elements is that only spacers of 12 base pairs can recombine with spacers of 23. You never get 12, 12. You never get 23, 23. But there's no directional specificity. So I could have a 12 here and a 23 here, or it could be vice versa. Okay. So the way in which recombination occurs is that this sequence is referred to as a recombination signal sequence. It's recognized by recombination machinery that's only expressed in B and T cells to direct recombination between first D, J elements. So this would be 12, 23, and this will be 23, 12. Then we'll have B, D, J. And the same rearrangements occur in T cells during the rearrangement of the T cell receptor. So here we have the alpha and the gamma T cell receptor chains, B, J joining. Here we have the beta and the delta T cell receptor chains, B, D, J joining. Same machinery does it as well. Same signal sequences. So these recombination events can either result in deletions in the gen genome of B and T cells or inversions. And that is because if I have signal sequences oriented in this way, the recombination event between these two signal sequences will delete this intervening sequence, generating this end product, bringing these two coding sequences together. If these are arranged such that this one is pointing rather than this direction, this direction, the rearrangement that would bring these two coding sequences together would just be an inversion, flipping the DNA in the genome such that this DNA is retained, the signal sequence is retained during the recombination, and coding sequences are brought in proximity to each other. And so you could easily assay this. And this is how all the original people that got the Nobel Prize for B and B cell gene rearrangements um, initially monitored what was going on in the genome. It was just southern blotting analysis. What's happening in the immunoglobulin loci in this B cell? You know, these sequences are being deleted during gene rearrangement. Or they're not being deleted, they're being retained. And so the sequence inverted during gene rearrangement. So this was the first big breakthrough in how this process worked. Why is it only occurring in B cells and T cells? And it was really a super clutter experiment. So, um, and this was David Baltimore's group. So what they did is they put a reporter gene into fibroblasts. And this gene it is GPT. I don't, I don't know what GPT stands for. But this gene confers resistance to uh, mycophenolic acid. So cells that express GPT can grow in the presence of mycophenolic acid. But how they put the construct together in the fibroblast was such that transcription was occurring in this direction. And they had the GPT gene inverted. So it was being trans its antisense was being transcribed, not its sense strand. And what they want, what they flanked this inverted gene with was recombination signal sequences. And what they wanted to do was identify an activity that would flip the GPT gene and put it in the correct orientation 
such that it's now being transcribed, translated, and conferring resistance to scrub. And so the way they did it was they took a cDNA library from B cells, and they transfected these fibroblasts with the cDNA library from B cells, and they say, is there any clone that can now grow in the presence of mycophenolic acid? And if so, what is the protein that's being encoded in that clone? And this is how they originally identified the RAG1 recombinase. Um, I forget what RAGing stands for, but it's, it's the nomenclature, RAG1. What they noticed, and actually I don't even know what motivated these experiments, the recombination efficiency directed by RAG1 alone was very low. It was a very inefficient process. Even in cells when they introduced RAG1, they wouldn't always get this flipping occurring, making a functional uh, GPT gene product. And so they searched, are there other accessory genes that could be involved in this uh, recombination event and are necessary for the efficient recombination that we know occurs in B and T cells? And this had to be fortuitous because all they did is they took the flanking sequence both upstream and downstream of the RAG1 gene in, um, in humans and they introduced it into these fibroblasts that were expressing RAG1. And in that way, they identified RAG2. It's a structurally unrelated protein, but it's required for, both the proteins are required for maximal efficiency of um, gene rearrangements in B and T cells. And so what do they do? So here's a 12 uh, recombination signal sequence with a 12 base pair spacer. Here's one with a 23 base pair spacer. And here they're just looking at what are the biochemical activities associated with RAG1 and RAG2 by themselves and together? And this is just a gel shift analysis. So you're all familiar with that. We have a P32 labeled probe that is either a 12 or 23 base pair recombination signal sequence. They're just adding RAG1, RAG2, or both of them together to this probe and asking, do we get a shift in mobility on an Adros gel? And what they found is that RAG2 can't bind to the recombination signal sequences at all. RAG1 binds with moderate affinity, but if you add RAG1 and RAG2 together, they bind with high affinity. So it's the combined action of RAG1 and RAG2 together that allow for the recognition of these 12 and 23 base pair spacer recombination signal sequences with high affinity. Um, I'm not going to show you a slide, but it's also RAG1 and RAG2 together are necessary for cleavage of the DNA at the coding sequence, signal sequence junction, all right? You need both proteins together, and that's why RAG1 will do it at very low efficiency by itself, and that, that's how they were able to clone it out. But it was only when they put RAG1 and RAG2 together that it occurred with any efficiency. And here's just the um, key features of these proteins, RAG1 and RAG2. Um, RAG1, again, has the recombination signal sequence recognition domains. They combine to the nonomer. They combine to the heptamer. This region's involved in DNA cleavage. RAG2 has a core domain that's also necessary for efficient DNA cleavage. But the other key thing that RAG2 binds to, and what Dr. Partridge was talking about, is a modified histone. So trimethyllysine 4 histone 3. It has a domain. It specifically interacts with this histone modification. 
and we'll come back to what that means in a minute. So how does recombination occur? What is, what's happening to the DNA during the recombination process? So here we have a 12-23 bare mace pair spacer, B, J element, and when RAG1 and RAG2, and this can be done in a test tube, uh, recognize these sequences, they'll bring these uh, two sequences together, and here they sort of synapse these two sequences together. Um, it's unclear if this occurs. But once they're brought together, a cleavage is made here and here. And in the coding sequence, there's a closed hairpin following the introduction of this cleavage on the coding sequence on both the B and the J gene. And then the signal sequence is actually, they're putting it as a blunt cleavage here. But this is a product they're hypothesizing that would occur if this blunt sequence was joined together and circularized. And actually, in B cells, you can detect these closed circular products that are the result of the cleavage of the intervening sequence during BDJ recombinations. So what occurs in stepwise fashion during cleavage? RAG1 and RAG2 come in and cleave one strand, and then the second cleavage is non-enzymatic. There is a, nu a nucleolytic attack of the cyloxyl on the second strand, and this is why we get this closed hairpin on the coding sequence and this blunt end on the signal sequence. So now we got a problem, just a topological problem. I have two coding sequences that have a closed hairpin. How do I join those two coding sequences together? And the, these cells have taken advantage of it to generate additional diversity in antibody structure um, because of the way in which the, uh, those closed hairpins are processed during recombination. So here's a B element, here's a J element, here's this closed hairpin at the end during processing by RAG1 and RAG2. The enzyme that processes this is specific. It's uh, specifically involved in it, or I won't say specifically in B cells, primarily involved in this process in B and T cells. The enzyme's called Artemis. It's going to be listed later in one of the slides. It's just an endonuclease that has the ability to recognize this closed hairpin. But the features of Artemis is it doesn't recognize this hairpin um, in any specific fashion. It can cleave here, 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 or here to resolve this hairpin, to allow it to join with this hairpin that can also be cleaved in any of these positions. Well, if the cleavage was here and here, I'd generate two blunt end pieces of DNA that could just be brought together and the product following recombination would be the same sequence that was present in the original germline. I wouldn't get any additional sequence. But what if the cleavage occurred here and here? Now I'm going to generate this little three prime overhang. This is going to be filled in by DNA repair synthesis. This one's going to be filled in by DNA repair synthesis. And following the joining of these after the, they're filled in, this blunt end is brought together. And then I can introduce another uh, codon into the coding sequence present at the BJ joining site. So here's how we generate additional antigenic diversity, or antibody diversity, because of the imprecision involved in processing this closed hairpin during the joining event. So um, this was a puzzle for quite a while, and I'm going to describe the puzzle, and I want you to tell me, based on the sort of techniques you're familiar with, 
how you might address the puzzle. All right, so the question was, I have, um, and it really it is, again, this gymnastics event. This is 2.7 megabases, big. This B gene rearranges with this D, J gene. And so the question is, how do I bring this D gene together to this DJ joining element and specify recombination to remove all of this intervening sequences? And how can it be accomplished? And so two models were proposed to try to account for how it might occur. The first one was a recruitment model where um, you had this DJ joining and rag one and two would be bound here and it somehow would capture via recruitment this B gene and undergo rearrangement. So that's depicted here, this idea of capture. All right, so it's pulling in this other uh, recombination signal sequence and recombining with it. The other one was rag-rag association, so that rags would bind both at this junction here and at this junction here, and they would just somehow be brought in proximity to, to each other to direct the recombination. How would you distinguish, given some of the techniques you're familiar with, those two possibilities? I know you guys are familiar with another technique, we've talked about it, that would allow you to ask whether this occurs. I mean, what is inherent in this idea? What's inherent in this idea is that the RAG1, RAG2 complex only binds to this or this. How could you ask that? Pardon me? combination sequences on D, J, or D genes. All right, these things, you can, they know the sequence of them, so they ask that question. <clears throat> and here was the end, end product of that analysis. It turned out that the RAG1, RAG2 complexes at the light chain locus only bound to the J joint, J sequences. 
So the recombination signal sequences flanking J genes. At this, the heavy chain locus, again, they only bound to the sequences flanking the, day, the J genes. So, and the same thing occurs in the T cell receptor. J genes, J genes. So this RAG1, RAG2 complex can only bind at J genes. And somehow it then recruits or captures the recombination signal sequence at the B gene to direct recombination with this element. All right? So they did chip assays to determine that. And so here are the features associated with it. So RAG1 binds to recombination signal sequences at J genes in vivo and B and T cells. All right? Only in B and T cells. Uh, RAG2 primes to trimethylated lysine 4 of histone 3. This is a modification associated with transcriptionally active chromatin. All right? Uh, the J genes are recruited to, this is, the, this is an idea, it's not proven, are recruited to transcriptionally permissive regions of the nucleus prior to recombination. And they're getting this uh, histone modification during this recruitment process, and transcription is occurring. And we know that those J genes undergo transcription prior to the mature gene rearrangement occurring. That was known for quite a while. Um, and then the RAG1 and RAG2 genes are not associated with the B region genes, again, suggesting a model where RAG proteins bind to these proteins at the J genes and then capture the recombination signal sequences at uh, these downstream sites. But we still have another problem. Why in B cells are only the immunoglobulin genes rearranged and the T cell receptor genes not rearranged? And in T cells, only the T cell receptor genes are rearranged and not the immunoglobulin genes rearranged. So here's the first part of the puzzle, and then I'll show you data suggesting how we get this B cell T cell exclusion going on. So here are, here's RAG1. It combined the recombination signal sequence. In vitro, it, uh, you can identify its interaction by chip assays with these recombination signal sequences at J regions. RAG2, again, it can't bind to the recombination signal sequence, but it's necessary for the efficient cleavage here. What RAG2 binds to is the histone modification that's associated with transcriptionally active chromatin. So the idea is this region in the immunoglobulin loci will be moved into a transcriptionally permissive region, acquire this mark, which is associated with transcription. The region will undergo transcription, RAG2 will be recruited in here via this interaction, and somehow RAG1 and RAG2 come together to specifically bind and cleave at this site. Then we have something that's really not understood at all, how it occurs, but they're hypothesizing now. Remember, this can be as much as two megabases away from this. There has to be some sort of looping of the DNA to bring one of these B genes in proximity of this J gene in order for this one to undergo recombination with this one. But this is, it's hypothetical. I mean, they can't envision any other way that it can work. But the other part about this element moving to transcriptionally permissive regions, there's evidence to support it. And it moves in in a lineage-specific fashion. And that is, in, a, in the T cells, only the T cell receptor genes move into a transcriptionally permissive region. In the B cells, 
only the immunoglobulin genes move into a transcriptionally permissive region. And so here's one of those chromosomal paint assays. And what we're looking at here is a 3' T-cell receptor uh, alpha exon. So we're looking at an exon that is going to undergo gene rearrangement in the T-cell receptor. And we're looking at its localization in splenic B-cells, or we're looking at their, its, this localization of this exon in double positive T-cells, CD4, CD8 positive T-cells. And what you see is that this exon resides in the chromosomal 14 paint area. So it doesn't get excluded from the general chromosomal 14 localization profile within the nucleus. But in T cells, this exon is excluded. It moves into another region of the nucleus. And so the idea is this movement is associated with um, the transcription of that region and the acquisition of that region of those histone modifications that allow for recruitment of RAG2. RAG1 can already bind to those recombination signal sequences, and now we have both of them there. But it only occurs in a lineage-specific fashion. So this exon only moves in T cells. It doesn't move in B cells. And the flip would occur at the immunoglobulin loci. If I did the similar experiment at the immunoglobulin loci and asked, do these VJ joining segments move in um, B cells? Yes, they would move. They would move out of the region of the chromosome and you'd see movement within the nucleus. But you wouldn't see that occurring in the T cells. So this is the thought process. You know, we, there's a lot not understood exactly about how it goes on, but it makes sense and it's certainly something we further tested. All right, so we make this cleavage here and here, and following resolution of that cleavage product by Artemis, we get a blunt end, and we got to bring those blunt ends together. How do we join those blunt ends together? And it's joined by what's referred to as the non-homologous end-joining machinery. So it takes two blunt end sequences that can be unrelated in sequence, and it brings them together and ligates them together. And there are four components, really, to the non-homologous end-joining DNA machinery. The first one is a heterodimer that's called KU. There's two proteins in the heterodimer, bind 70 and 80 kilodaltons. Once KU binds, it recruits a protein called DNA-dependent protein kinase. It's a member of the PI3 kinase family of um, kinases, the ones that are inhibitable by warp manner. And then the final protein that's pulled into the complex is DNA ligase 4, and they join them together. And here you can see KU found at the ends, two blunt ends of DNA. And in this piece of DNA on the grid, you can see that KU brought those two pieces of DNA in close apposition to each other can, so they can be joined by DNA ligase 4. So what had I mentioned to you um, about uh, any piece of double-stranded DNA that gets a cleavage? What binds here? 53BP1 binds to this site in At any cleavage site that, is, that occurs in, in our cells, and it binds with reasonably high affinity. And what has to happen to 53BP1 for this end to be processed by the homologous recombination machinery? Brica 1 comes in and pops it off. Well, it doesn't have to knock it off for this machinery.
to join it together. So this machinery is able to accommodate 53 BP1 bound at this end and still join those two ends together. So that, that is the difference between the homologous recombination machinery and the non-homologous end joining machinery is their regulation or lack of regulation in the case of these guys uh, by 53 BP1. And here's a cartoon of how they think it occurs. KU binds, and this is done by footprinting analysis. They just ask where does KU bind on the ends of one end cut DNA. And KU initially binds to the end of the DNA. If you add DNA-dependent protein kinase to the mix, the footprint shifts down, protects a bigger region downstream of the blunt end. And then, um, and then this is just cartoon, DNA ligase 4 would recruit it here and bring these ends together so that it can be joined um, without any loss of sequence. And that's the key feature here, joined without any loss of sequence. So here I'm depicting what would occur during the introduction of a DNA double-strand break, but this is the same sort of break that is appearing during um, BDJ joining. In fact, if Artemis processed it to generate this overhang, it would be the same sort of structure identically as we get during DNA joining. And then KU comes in, it's a heterodimer, it, it recruits DNA-dependent protein kinase, and then the ends are brought together via the activity of DNA ligase 4. I, I don't much, you don't have to remember the name of this, but in a subsequent slide, the, the name Cernunos pops up. This is just an accessory factor that um, facilitates joining by ligase 4. And this is a part um, I don't understand, I'm not sure, um, I'm not sure it is understood, but um, remember that the master regulator of joining of DNA breaks by homologous recombination is the kinase ataxia telangiectasia mutant protein, uh, and this is the master regulator, and then the MRN complex is necessary for joining this break via homologous recombination. Mutants in ATM or MRN are also deficient in this end joining process. I don't know the link between those two observations. Uh, one other point that I want to make, just in terms of your understanding of developing antibody diversity, is so we have um, a non-specific cleavage event here can generate diversity because the cleavage can occur here, here, or here. But in addition, once the cleavage is made, and I have two blunt ends, the enzyme terminal, terminal deoxynucleotidyl transferase can come in and add non-templated nucleotides to the end of this DNA to generate additional diversity at the joining sites between the VJ and VDJ junctions, okay? So these non-templated nucleotides add additional diversity at these joint sites. So what is the, pay what is the price that the immune system has paid in order to develop massive diversity in the way in which these sequences can be joined together. What, what, is, the, what is the cost to the cell and the organism? Well, I, well go ahead. You're going to say something. Or were your lips just moving? <laughs> Random combinations 
You do, but I talked about it already in this phenomena where we go through allelic exclusion. A third of the time, the gene rearrangements are non-productive because they pull stop codons in and they prematurely truncate the proteins because of the, um, the way in which diversity can arise during this joining mechanism. If it was absolutely precise, all you would always do is bring the germline sequence together and you'd always make a functional protein. But um, your protein coding capacity, the number of different proteins you could make, would be limited because all you get is the germline sequence. This way, you can get much more than the germline sequence, but a large number of them are going to be uh, dead in the water. They won't make anything productive. Okay, so just the summary. Um, here we have the heavy chain locus. What is the first joining that occurs at the heavy chain locus? So heavy chain locus is V, D, J elements. What's the first joining that occurs at the heavy chain locus? DJ. What is, what is the recombination signal sequence that specifies recognition of a D and a J? 12-23 rule, okay? You only get recombination in that direction. What's the nature of the cleavage product following the introduction of RAG1 and RAG2 with the coding sequence? It's a closed hairpin. What's the nuclease that cleaves here and breaks this hairpin to make it able to be ligated to this coding sequence? It's, it's this nuclease here, Artemis, okay? Um, there's been a lot of mutagenesis. These sequences are absolutely required. Uh, specific nucleotides within these sequences are absolutely required for high affinity binding by RAG1. Um, but I'm, it's really just the whole element that binds RAG1. Does RAG2 have the capacity to bind to um, recombination signal sequences? How do we know that? Gel shifts and chip assays, all right? We know that from gel shifts and chip assays. RAG2 binds to modified histone. Uh, H3, a modification on lysine 4, uh, histone H3, and it's recruited to these transcriptionally permissive regions, and that's how you get both of them bound at this site. And then the phenomenon of gene rearrangement is not a, um, a self-association of a rag here and a rag here. It's some sort of capture phenomenon, which the molecular details of we don't know. But this complex here somehow captures this B gene to direct rearrangement. And so here's just a list of the consequences of having a null mutation in Artemis, the nuclease. Um, these mice, this, you're familiar with the skid mice, severe combined immunodeficiency syndrome. So these mice are skid. Uh, what's a hypomorphic allele? Yeah, reduced activity. An allele that reduces results in reduced activity. So if you have a hypomorphic allele, you also get skid mice. These mice are prone to development of cancers because instead of this joining occurring between VJ, what you get when you have mutations in this machinery that's required for joining is translocations. You'll get that this sequence bind. Once the cleavage is put in here, the sequence will bind to other sequences in the genome and result in um, translocations that result in proliferation and cancers. Uh, the same thing here, we have hypomorphic alleles in DNA ligase 4, 
Uh, it's, I don't really understand why that would not be skid, but it's variable apparently. And, um, but it is, does lead to uh, the development of cancer. And then cernunos, this is ex, uh, accessory factor that's required for uh, joining via DNA ligase 4. It's X, XRCC4. Okay, so one last point that I want to talk about, and that is, again, the rearrangement that goes on initially in all B and T cells is not driven by sort of any sort of antigen selection. All right, the, it's a random gene rearrangement process that results in a surface immunoglobulin or in a surface T cell receptor that have um, antigen recognition specificity. And the, uh, the first gene rearrangement is at the, at the immunoglobulin loci is almost always for the mu constant region gene. So here's the heavy chain locus, B, E, J, mu. Remember there were nine constant region genes at the heavy chain locus. So the first rearrangement that doesn't occur under any sort of antigenic selection, it's in a naive B cell, goes to mu. Sometimes it goes to the delta chain, but most often to mu. When this cell binds to surface antigen, depending upon the cytokine profile that's present in its environment, at the time of antigenic stimulation, the cell will be stimulated to class switch. And really all we're talking about here is it's going to switch from this constant region gene to an IgG1, a gamma constant region gene, or IgG2B, one of these alternative downstream constant region genes. And the, again, the constant region direct, um, directs effector function. And this is how the cytokine profile plays into which class switch occurs. And the way that that class switch occurs is a recombination of that, again. There's a switch element upstream of the mu region and a switch element upstream of this gamma 1 region. And this sequence undergoes recombination when the intervening sequence is deleted. And now we have EDJ gamma 1. So how does this recombination relate to the recombination we see during BDJ joining? The first one is it doesn't require RAG1 and RAG2 to put in the cuts. The second one is um, during class switch recombination, um, activation-induced cytidine deaminase is turned on. And, and what does that enzyme do? It removes an amino group from, uh, from cytosine residues that are present in the duplex, generating a uracil. Okay? Uracil is recognized as DNA damage by the DNA damage repair machinery in the cell. And this uracil is removed by uracil and glycosidase. So now we have abasic sites present in the DNA duplex. The duplex is still intact, but the base has been removed. And then another enzyme comes in, and this is an endonuclease. This is ATE1 endonuclease. And I'm not sure they actually know that this nuclease does it. An endonucleolytic activity is required. It cleaves here and here. So now we have breaks in the genome. And going from this, which, so these breaks are being introduced here, and these breaks are being introduced here. And then this sequence undergoes recombination. Um, the details of this are not, uh, I don't understand. And it's, it's very murky how this occurs. But what is known is that 
this joining. So how do we go from this intermediate to two blunt ends that can be joined together? That's the part that's not understood. But what is understood is that this joining of this to this can require the non-homologous end joining machinery. So the same machinery that's involved in joining BDJ elements during rag recombination. But it doesn't require it. You can have mutants in components of this pathway, and these ends are still brought together at pretty high efficiency. And that, pro and that mechanism is referred to as alternative end joining. And this uh, process is pretty, well, you can look it up in the literature. <laughs> it's pretty poorly described. They, they basically think that it's just microhomology based. So if we have this intermediate generating this following endonuclease, and now this duplex uh, breaks apart, I'll have this overhang. This alternative end joining machinery is presupposing that if there's any homology here to an overhang that develops in this switch region, they're brought together and joined. But the enzymes that do it, it it's, it's a phenomenon. It's not an enzymatic process. We don't know how these ends are brought together and joined. It's just we do know that you don't absolutely require the non-homologous end joining machinery to bring them together. OK? Questions? OK, one thing I had on my first lecture that the discussion was Wednesday for my papers. It's Friday of next week. And if not, I will see you next week.